Hello and welcome to Statistically Interesting, the podcast where we interview analysts and data scientists to find out about the fascinating work that they do and how they got to where they are today. I'm your host, Jake Stein. I'm co-founder of RJ Metrics. You can find out more about me and find out about new episodes by following me on Twitter, at Jake Stein. All right, today on the show, we have Vijay Subramanian, Chief Analytics Officer at Rent the Runway. We talk about data strategy at Rent the Runway, we get philosophical about math and how we get more numerate as a species, and we learn what being data-driven really means. And here's our conversation. Uh, welcome back to the podcast. We're extremely excited about the guests we have here today. Uh, love to get right into it. Uh, guest, would you mind introducing yourself? Hey, Jake. Uh, pleasure to be here. Uh, my name is Vijay Subramanian. I currently am at Rent the Runway. I'm the Chief Analytics Officer and also the Head of Growth. Uh, and before this, I was at a B2B startup called ProfitLogic, which was acquired by Oracle. And before that, I did my master's and PhD in operations research. So that's my big background. Excellent. And, and so what, what exactly does a, does a chief analytics officer do? Well, it's interesting. So I, uh, you know, I joined Rindaranvay very early on. Uh, I was actually, I think, literally post-seed. I think we were only six months in. So in many ways, uh, since the beginning, so the last five and a half years or so, we launched in 2009 and I joined in 2010 summer. Over the last five and a half years, I have uh, always managed the vertical data function, which I can get into in, uh, in more detail later on. But beyond that, I think I've, uh, I've also managed a lot of cross-functional teams working on critical initiatives uh, for which data is the underpinning. Uh, so I think a couple of you know a couple of big things that we have actually helped uh, solve. For the first three years or so, uh, you know, so one step back. So, you know, for the audience who, who don't know what Render Runway does, we are an online rental platform for designer goods. So you can go online, you can rent an amazing dress. It'll come to your doorstep. You wear the dress, you put it back in the mailbox, uh, and, and we take care of the rest. So it's, it's a very simple model for the user, but it's a very complicated thing to make it work on the back end. So for the first three years or so, I really worked on the supply side of it, so to speak, which is the operations and the inventory side of it. Because end of the day, the whole economics of the business rests on how fast can we turn the inventory uh, from one rental to another, and how long can we turn it, right? So for to make that happen, we had to build a lot of uh, proprietary technology and uh, driven by data fundamentally. So I, I oversaw a lot of that uh, build out for the first couple of years, cross-functional team of engineers, product folks, data folks. And then the last couple of years, I've been working on the demand side of it to accelerate our growth of the business on the, on the demand side of it. And the two big initiatives there have been around pricing, which has been a huge lever for us to drive growth, and also just trying to find marketing channels or paid marketing channels to drive growth. So I've run the data function from start to finish for the last five and a half years, but I've also been wearing multiple hats along the way on both the supply and the demand side to fundamentally sort of scale the business. Got it. Super interesting. And I, I'm sure I'll have some more questions about uh, some specifics around what, what you all are doing around the one right now. But, but one quick one, uh, the, uh, so you're wearing, you know, multiple hats in terms of, you know, the, uh, the supply side and the demand side. The, the teams that you work with, are they specialized in uh, one or the other, or are those people cross-functional as well? No, I mean, typically the the, 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 the technology and product teams are actually dedicated, mm -hmm. working on the operation side of the equation. So we're building out this reverse logistics platform that allows us to take inventory from uh, one user from the previous weekend, 
they have a, 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 an event on a Friday or a Saturday. They have an amazing time. They take pictures. They post it on our website. They do reviews, and then they drop it off in the mail on Monday. And then we have to get the inventory back Tuesday or Wednesday, and then turn it around for the next weekend. So to make that make that technology platform work, the engineering team and the product team are pretty much dedicated. Uh, even the data scientists are also dedicated. Uh, so that that specific team is a is a cross-functional team with a mandate with a mandate to work on the on the remote logistics platform. So those those team those people are not shared at all. It's just more of uh, my role is sort of working, you know, getting them together to actually work on the long-term uh, sort of strategic roadmap and and building out the right technology to make the economics work for us. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. Uh, and I think one thing that that I think is interesting, based on uh, what I know about your background, is that in, in some ways your your career it seems like it, uh, it it mirrors the development of you know big data or da- data science and kind of the evolution of those industries over time. Um, I wonder. Uh, I know a very little bit about Profit Logic. Would you just talk briefly about what exactly that company did? Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at my my overall career arc, I mean, I think it's I don't know if it actually mirrors the typical data science role because I feel like I'm more of a late bloomer. Um, and I think, you know, there are a lot of people who say, you know, in an age of seven or eight, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to do math or science or arts or whatever. I think for me, pretty much my high school and college days, I really had no clue what I wanted to do, to be honest. Um, you know, if growing up, but I grew up in India when you were in high school, I was just fundamentally inquisitive. I was curious. I actually had interest both in the arts and the sciences. But if you're good academically, you're pretty much pushed into being a doctor or an engineer. So I was pushed along this pathway to essentially be an engineer, if you will. So I, you know, I joined one of the elite engineering schools in India. I was actually a chemical engineer in my undergrad days back in India. And I think it was probably my third year or so where I took a course in optimization. And it was actually pretty fascinating because it was the first time I actually was able to think about uh, the field of optimization, because my, my first exposure to it, and the idea that you actually can look at the real world, you can model that through mathematical equations, and actually make decisions based on that was super fascinating to me. So that was my third year of my undergrad chemical engineering. I came to the U.S. for my grad school to do my master's and my Ph.D., and even there, I pretty much gravitated more and more towards math and modeling, away from the experimental work in the labs, which you could do as a chemical engineer. So there's only about three or four schools in the U.S. which actually specialize in a mathematical operations research-oriented program for your master's and PhD. I was happy to be in one of them, so I ended up working on modeling these chemical plants, how to optimize them, working on supply chain problems. And then when I left that and I joined Procter & Gamble to, to, to work on actually modeling their production facilities, I thought actually I was at like my peak career. To be honest, hmm. you know, for you know, you know, for a kid growing up, you know, in the lower middle class in India, to come all this way and actually get a job at Procter and Gamble, that was like peak career. But it was something, you know, it was, it was a nice job. Don't get me wrong, but something inside me kept saying, you know what? There's probably a lot more to learn. Uh, and you know, when you work for a large organization, as nice as the stability and the comfort level is, the learning curve can be somewhat slow, mm-hmm. right? Me kept saying, you know, there's probably more out there, there's probably more out there. And then I got this opportunity to join a, I would say, a growth stage startup called Profit Logic. And that was in Boston. And I jumped at it, actually. So I joined, uh, I joined Profit Logic. And Profit Logic already had like 100 plus employees. They already were doing 
they were they already were doing big data before the term was cool. We were, you know, Papalogic was ingesting large scale store level uh, retail sales data from the likes of Walmart, Gap, JCPenney, building applications to help them price better, run promotions better, allocate inventory better. So they they were doing big data before big data was even a term. And in fact, when they hired people out of PhDs, they actually called them scientists. So in many ways, I think they even had the term data scientists before the term actually became popular. Um, and I, you know, so I, I joined ProfitLogic as a scientist, and I knew that working for a small company would give me way more exposure to this field. And you know, quickly grew up the ranks, ran the data science team, and then over time, even you know, oversaw the entire implementation of our product portfolio. Uh, you know, not just the scientists, but also scientists and also the project managers and the business consultants who are working to gather requirements. So I quickly grew, you know, understood how to really bring together data along with other elements of the product to build an end-to-end -end thing. And that was a good sort of, I would say, three to four year learning. And I was very fortunate to actually be mentored by one of the co-founders of ProfitLogic. So that was sort of, you know, I would say that's probably my pivotal experience in really understanding the field of data science and how to apply it in real world applications. And then crazily enough, towards the end of it, you know, I gotten very good at, at, at knowing how to use my data science skills and my product skills and build these products. And I noticed that, you know, in the, in the B2B world, there was a lot of action going on and actually articulating the product value proposition to large retailers and the, and the exec teams. And there was a huge sales machinery, if you will. Mm -hmm. So I was pretty fascinated by that equation. Like, how do you actually convince uh, the CEO of Payless to, you know, to pony down a few million dollars to buy the black box B2B data product that will magically drive millions of dollars in benefit, right? And, and how do you explain store clustering to the head, to, to the head of merchandising at Payless Shoe Store? Right. So, so that was pretty fascinating for me. So I actually gave up my team and spent almost a year, year and a half as a director of, uh, of accounts. Hmm. I, and I had about half a dozen to nine clients, retail clients, including Payless actually. And my job there actually was to articulate the products that we were building and the, the value proposition in the products. I would oversee indirectly the implementation of it. I would measure the value, the actual results delivered by it, and I would really help uh, ProfitLogic sell more and more services and products to the retailers. So that was actually my role for about a year and a half where I really learned how to not just be a good data scientist or a good manager of cross-functional teams to, to implement the products, but also to how to sell them, how to articulate the value proposition to, non uh, to, to a non-data uh, science audience. So that's sort of like, that's my, my career arc. And I think when I was finishing that up, you know, I was there for almost five years. And by the way, in the meantime, we were acquired by Oracle. We again became a big company. And I felt like I was ready for the next challenge. And it was about that time when I think, uh, you know, B2B does have its distortions in terms of what you do because sales is a huge part of how do you grow. I mean, I'm sure you're aware of this, right? Oh, absolutely. So, so I figured, you know, I think a lot, I wanted to work in the consumer internet space where it's direct to consumer, where I think the feedback is more, maybe more real time, where you actually can, you know, where the sales doesn't distort, if you will, the quality of the product, for lack of a better phrase. So, and also at that time, I think, I think consumer internet was also pretty hard. I mean, B2B is hard again right now, but back in 2010, uh, you know, the, the, the talk was all about consumer internet. So I got the opportunity to join Ren a Greenfield opportunity with two co-founders, you know, trying this for the first time. And I thought I can have a big impact, not just as a data guy, but fundamentally as a technologist and a product guy. And, and that's exactly how it's played out. Because of the last five and a half years, I, I, I've worn pretty much the technologist had frequently, the product had frequently, 
and that's been a, a big benefit, I think, to the company. Yeah, I imagine. And I think it's so interesting. And, and what I was kind of getting at before when I said that I think your career has in some ways paralleled the industry as a whole, it's where, you know, it seems like a company like ProfitLogic, uh, like you said, it was, it's, a, it's a data company. You know, they're very specifically doing data analysis, and that's, that's the thing that they, they sell, an output of that analysis, where uh, Rent the Runway, uh, if, uh, if, they didn't, if I didn't know that a person like you was, was part of the, the, the early team there, uh, and that the company had such a focus on data, you know, it's designer outfits, you know, addresses and things like that. It doesn't necessarily seem like it's obviously a company that with a big focus on data. Uh, and, you know, it's probably a case in point where there's so much uh, buzz and, and marketing speak and, you know, everyone is talking about how big data is the future and it's so important and everyone's going to be a data scientist in the next, you know, 10 years or whatever. Um, do you have a take or, or how do you filter out, you know, what is actually something that obviously you care a lot about and have dedicated a lot of your career to versus what's uh, the pieces that are just, just buzz and just noise? I think, that's, I think that, that, that's a great question, right? I mean, there's a lot of uh, buzz around big data. And I think for 95% of companies, I don't think we're truly dealing with big data in terms of scale, right? I mean, the, the way I think about it is that there is a select few companies which have real big data, sort of true big data, if you will. And for them, in, in a weird way, without the big data, it's almost hard to imagine the company actually succeeding, right? So if you think about the, the best example of that is Google, right? If, if your mission is to index the entire web and you want to be the gateway to the web, then you have to pretty much crawl the entire web, which is probably right now trillions of pages. And you also have to serve that to the customer in a fraction of a second. Right, that problem at that scale is fundamentally a big data problem. Right, you the company wouldn't succeed and be at the scale if it not were for the ability for it to process all that data, crawl all that data, and then be able to index and actually serve it up in fractions of seconds. And I think that also applies to you know these online social networks like Facebook, and LinkedIn. Also applies to even e-commerce. I mean, there's a I saw this crazy stat that said that Amazon is almost half of e-commerce sales. So there is certain, you know, in all of these fields, there's a certain benefit, and there's a certain, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't even say benefit, I'd say it's almost, it's integral to the company's success at scale to be able to handle large volumes of data and make sense of it and use it productively, right? And, and there's no surprise that, you know, if you think about Google as an example, again, that the whole Hadoop movement, uh, which has, you know, commodity hardware, HDFS, uh, MapReduce, a lot of that stuff came out of, uh, Google and Yahoo, which were using those early technologies to just crawl the web, right? So it's no surprise that the open source movement really came from the you know, the big web companies. So I think in, so I think for me that's sort of a five percent or even less actually a small group of companies that are truly dealing with scale, and you know without which those companies wouldn't exist. And then there is the rest of us. There is this big, huge, fat tail of all of these companies. We all have data in various sizes and shapes and forms, and I think it's actually a, a, a benefit that there is all this buzz around big data because there's been, I think, a great, if you will, a spillover effect or a trickle-down effect in all of this talk about data that the rest of us, the 95, the 97, even the 99% of us who are in the thick fact tail, who are now forced to think about you know, what, you know, the, you know, what, what data do we actually have, what are we collecting, how do we make better sense of it? 
And all of this actually is coming because of this big buzz around this 1% or 2% of companies which are truly handling data at scale. So it's kind of a fascinating thing to watch for me over the last few years. And, and I, I, I would even argue that the, the there's always been a trend, if you will. If you want to take a step back and get more philosophical about it, there's always been a trend for us as a, as a, as a species, humans as a species, to become more numerate over time, right? We've, we've always been trying to understand the world, and the best way to understand the universe is through some form of equation and some form of math, right? And I think it was actually Einstein who eloquently said that math is a language that describes the universe. So in many ways, we've all been trying to, you know, model the universe through equations, try to figure it out. And I think since the dawn of the computing age, probably in the 60s and 70s, that pace has been accelerating, uh, you know, using the, you know, the improvements in computing power, the, the improvements in the... We're getting better and better to understand in, in, in making the world and understanding the world through, through numbers. And I almost feel like that trend has always been there over the last, you know, since the beginning of the species and more so in the last 70 years. But that, that's gone through an, an amazing sort of uh, catalytic improvement, if you will, because of the big data movement that just happened in the last five, 10 years, if that makes sense. So I, so I actually feel like all that buzz around big data has spilled over and is catalyzing what's, what is always, always ongoing, a movement to make our species more numerate and to use data you know, throughout our lives, not just at work, but also even in our daily lives. Yeah, I, I could not agree more with that. I think that's was, was really well put. And we actually have in, in some of our marketing collateral, uh, basically trying to, to put out the message that data is not the hot new thing and talking about, you know, the, the data visualizations that Florence Nightingale did to, to figure out that, you know, uh, one of the leading cause of deaths in hospitals is actually, you know, poor sanitation and things like that. You know, that's 100 plus years ago that people were doing things like this. Uh, but I think... I think you're absolutely right. That it's it's a trend that's been going on, and based on the tools we have, it's become more accessible, and you can do all things that that you've never been able to do before. Uh, I'm curious when you think about what separates that top five or top one percent of companies that that truly do have big data from the vast majority of companies that you know are, are getting more numerate and more sophisticated. Uh, is there a a bright line there or a rule of thumb for outside of the fact that that just a, a huge volume of data is, is integral to their business operations? Is it a certain number of, of terabytes or something? Or how do, you, how do you discriminate those? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably a hard question. I mean, but I think it's really more in terms of scale of users, I think, mm -hmm. fundamentally. Okay. Uh, I mean, if you look at the, uh, the billions of searches on Google or the millions on you know, Facebook has a billion active users. Uh, even Twitter has 250 million users on it. Uh, WhatsApp also is in the hundreds of millions. I mean, at that scale, I think that's a whole other scale of, of sort of how do you actually, you know, the, you know, in Facebook, for example, you can't just go there and not have a big data algorithm curate your newsfeed, right? It's just really impossible because you, you have so much information floating around in, the, in your social network that somebody has to intervene and somebody cannot be a human because it's too big, right? So, so you have to build something which is a machine learning algorithm which has to figure out what is the best thing to show you to keep you engaged on that platform. And same with LinkedIn. Same with Netflix, uh, you know, same with Amazon. So I think a lot of these companies, you know, it's almost like data is not a, a conscious start. It's almost a, a baked into the product because they have to do it. And that's what actually makes them special. Mm -hmm. I mean, not to, you know, it doesn't mean that the rest of us are, are uh, poor versions of it. I actually think we all can exploit our data in so many different ways. I just don't think of it as sort of true big data at scale. Um, you, know, I, you know, I think of all of us, you know, in this sort of thick fat tale as, there's definitely shades of how data-driven we can be, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you know, there is the 
there, there, there is a tactical shade, if you will, which is, are you at least looking at your data? Uh, you know, do you have a rhythm by which the business operates where you look at the, uh, the, the key metrics, you're making decisions objectively, more analytically, you're running controlled experiments, which is actually really important because I think you mentioned an example of, uh, of Florence Nightingale, you know, you, know, you know, in talking about you know, correlating the sanitation to uh, surgeries and deaths, right? Mm-hmm. I remember there's, there's a story about how uh, the, the linking of the lack of vitamin C to scurvy was done through an A-B test back in the day. There was a guy who was, uh, you, know, you, know, you know, they actually saw that sailors were getting scurvy all the time and he did an A-B test and he divided the group and half of them he gave, you know, something citrusy and half of them he did not and he actually drew the, the causal relationship between vitamin C and scurvy. Uh, so sort of the old example of an A-B test that actually is documented in literature. So, you know, if, you, if you're doing A-B tests, you're running experiments, you're looking at your numbers, you're making decisions analytically, that's sort of the tactical element of being data-driven. But I do think there is something that separates, I think, the best data companies from, I think, the average ones or the good ones, which is, are you thinking of data strategically? And, and, and I don't mean that to say, you know, are you, are you making good decisions at a strategic level using data? I think, I think it's even deeper than that. For me, it is... Are you looking at your company itself? So beyond just the problems you're solving, are you looking at the company yourself and applying a method to building your company, right? So I, I, I look at Run the Runway, and you know we started the company five and a half years ago, and you can almost, you know, I look back and I see like you know from the very beginning we were actually approaching the 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 philosophy of building the company through the scientific method. Which is really like, you know, whatever data you have, whether it was small back in the day or big right now, you're looking at the data, you're drawing inferences, you're actually making hypotheses, which is largely a human endeavor, by the way. So you look at the data, you draw, you know, you actually look at the data, you observe it, you, you, you make an hypothesis, you make a prediction, and then you test it, you see what actually happens, and then you refine your hypothesis and you go on and, you go on and, go, and uh, you know, keep doing that. And that is no different from the scientific method that we all learned in, what, fourth and fifth grade? Right. The idea that you're actually applying that concept consistently to the company. Now, it sounds trivial, and it sounds like everyone should be doing it, of course, but you'll be surprised at how hard it is to keep doing that, how hard it is to have that discipline as an organization to keep doing that at, at every stage of the company, whether you're small or whether you're big. And, and I think just having that in the culture, I think, truly separates, I think, the data-driven companies from being truly data-driven, if you will. It's really, are you employing the scientific method to making decisions across all parts of the company? And, and, and actually, the other day I was looking at, a, I was actually hearing a podcast about the, the lean startup. And there's a lot of actually similarities between what, and I've concluded myself independently in applying the scientific method of render runway to what the lean startup manifesto is, which is really the same concept. Yeah, I, uh, there's... Uh, a bunch of things you just said that I that had me uh, grinning from ear to ear. So totally, totally in line with you on a lot of that. Uh, I think just FYI, the the, the guy who um, uh, did that randomized controlled trial around vitamin C, that was James Lind. Uh, he's one of my personal heroes. He's totally amazing. Uh, I'll actually, uh, I gave a talk about him at a, at a, at a recent event. I'll, I'll include a, a link to that uh, in the show notes. Uh, but it was amazing. It was like comparing it against... Uh, uh, citrus fruit against vinegar and sulfuric acid and barley tea, uh, and I think it is like the, the first uh, recorded instance of a, of a randomized controlled trial. Um, 
but uh, but I, I love the things you're saying about uh, being data driven. Uh, super important to, to me and, and and our company. Our our mission statement is actually to inspire and empower data driven people. Um, and, and I think uh, what you say about the lean startup really rings true. Where it's you know really like a the attempt is to do a, a scientific approach to management. Um, and, and so like I think. Uh, when, when, when you and I are talking, it's kind of like uh, preaching to the choir. Uh, it's something where we, we both are, are totally on board with this. Uh, I think uh, either rightly or wrongly or, or potentially a little bit of both, there, there's some, some people that are not as comfortable with this than, as, as we are. Uh, I'm curious, either within your company today or, or in previous jobs or, or just like in general, do you see resistance to this? Are there people that have uh, the wrong idea about what it means? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure if you watch the presidential debates, there's a lot of uh, things you will learn on how to misinterpret uh, a lot of fallacies around data that's, that, that's, that's all visible to you. In fact, you know, in your daily life, I'm sure you see a lot of that as well. And I think there's a, probably a couple of big, uh, I would say, misconceptions about what data-driven really is and what applying the scientific method really is more importantly. Uh, which, which I think constantly comes in the way of sort of true adoption of the of the concept. Um, and I think one of them is uh, this idea that if you're data-driven, you create a very sterile, uh, robotic environment, right? You're actually, humans are just slaves to this machine that's constantly outputting data and numbers, and we're running, we're running this sort of sterile uh, workshop, if you will, and we're just elves, right? I mean, I think that there's this weird... Uh, I don't know why, but this certainly exists. I think in in uh, in folklore, and I think you know, I, you know, to me, creativity is a completely orthogonal concept to whether you're data driven or not. I mean, I've actually met some incredibly creative people in the science field, and, and also on the flip side, I've also met some not in the arts and creative field itself. So I think it's a completely orthogonal concept. A end of the day, you know, data driven. Is, is fundamentally a human endeavor, right? I mean, the numbers are there, you track it, you look at it, but you still have to develop, you know, connect the dots, develop the hypothesis, be disciplined about testing it, and then going back and looking at the feedback and then iterating hypothesis. That's a human endeavor, and there's a lot of creativity in how you do it, a lot of creativity in running the experiments, a lot of creativity in, in interpreting the results, and creativity in connecting the dots. And I think, fundamentally, it actually is a very creative human endeavor. So there's this big myth that if you're data-driven, you're not creative, and I think that's complete bullshit. Uh, so, so that's one thing that I've noticed a lot in terms of you know when people push back on what data-driven really is. Um, I think it's a I think it's a weak proxy for those who just want to do what they want to do, what they feel, as opposed to really looking at the numbers and making a good decision. I think the other the other thing that I see, which is probably a more reasonable objection, is the idea that if you're data-driven. Use, you often do local optimization, you take small steps, and you don't really go to the next big level of it if you're running sort of A-B experiments and you're learning. And I think it's a more, a little bit more of a reasonable objection, but also I think a lot of, uh, I would say mythology built around it as well. Because you know, the scientific method doesn't dictate the size of your step that you're taking, right? If you look at the whole, the, the, the old hill climbing analogy, you can either take small steps or you can take large steps. If you want to fathom the the feasible space, if you will, right? So, the the, the method itself doesn't doesn't prescribe you from taking smaller smaller big steps. I would say if you're 
autonomous companies in the in the one or two percent that is operating with massive scale, a shift of ten basis points, twenty basis points, fifty basis points, is a dramatic impact on the business because it multiplies because you have you know, hundreds of millions of billions of users, right? So a change of twenty basis points and engagement is a huge impact. So for them, making small steps actually is a huge fundamental impact on the P&L. For 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 in the runway, I would say in the early days. If you if I had an A/B test and I saw ten basis points is meaningless, right? In the in the first three years, even right now to me, a change of ten basis point is not at all interesting. So for us, we have to take much larger steps. We do we do have to uh, you know make sure that we're not you know trapped in looking at really small improvements to the business. However, this, again, the scientific method doesn't prescribe you from doing that. So it's all about when you're early, you then actively seek larger steps, and then you control your size of your bets. And then, but the principle still holds. It's it's still the you know the bet you're taking with your hypothesis, looking at the feedback, going back iterating on it, and then refining it, and then keep doing that again and again. And as time goes on, as the company scale, I think the size of the bets tend to probably shrink a little bit because you start to figure out things. And at some scale, hopefully, you know you've achieved product market fit, you've achieved scale, and and at that point, you probably tend to gravitate towards making much smaller steps. I think that makes total sense, and uh, I think one thing that, that a lot of people don't realize is that you can uh, use the data to help calibrate how ambitious your experiments ought to be. Because you know, uh, with with some not very sophisticated statistics, you you have some limited inventory of tests you can run based on how much traffic you have or how many people are using your product, and so it's I think it's very clarifying if you know like okay, well. You know, I'm only gonna based on the number of people I have and how long I have to run this test. You know, I'm only going to be able to get a statistically significant result if it is, you know, a five percent improvement. So I'm not going to be testing three different shades of red on this. I'm going to totally overhaul how this thing works because that's the only chance I have. Um, so, I, and I think that that obviously, like you're saying, evolves over the, over the course of the company. Um, but I, I also imagine that might require a different team over the course of the company. You know, like the, the, the people who were uh, taking those really big swings of the bat, they, they might not be the same people that, that are taking the more refinements later on as the company grows, or maybe they are the same people or they're just organized differently. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how how you've tackled that at, at Rent the Runway, specifically those, those sorts of challenges? That's an interesting question, actually. I mean, I think uh, you're right that it's, you know, there is a certain different, sort of different mentality when you're early on than when you're later on. I mean, I don't think we're at the kind of scale of a Google where... Right. Uh, you know, you can you can have a large team of engineers who are really dedicated to just maintaining the product, if you will, and and driving sort of small basis points improvements. I mean, we're not there yet, so we still need to take some fairly large swings. Uh, but that said, even 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 between 2010 and 2015, I you know I actually have noticed a, a change, I would say, in how we operate. You know, I, you know, I think in the very early days, you know, specifically for the analytics team, I can speak about it more than the rest of the organization. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, for the analytics team, when you're early on. You know, you really don't know very much about the company, right? I mean, the, your product is so new, you barely have some traction. You're kind of pre-product market fit, if you will. You, you know, you're figuring all that stuff out. So, the the data team and the engineering team, the product team, is all about sort of honing in on what are the one or two things that really matter. It's going to take us to the next big step of growth or scalability for the company. And and to do that. You know, we you know we didn't have the luxury, for example, of creating a whole sophisticated reporting system, right? In fact, you know, I, 
I think I infamously just, just shut down pretty much all reporting for the company in the early days because hmm. my concern was that if I'm just sending out reports to all these product leads and engineering leads, it would just sort of drown them in all this data but not really get the real insight of what's really happening and, and time was of the essence, right? Uh, because so we, you know, we pretty much said every, every week was operating on what am I learning this week? And a lot of the time, all of the time almost, uh, in, the, in the analyst team was spent on slicing and dicing. Slicing and dicing was sort of the key way to unlock insights. And the more insights we got, we will figure out what is the next big step to take. I mean, to example earlier about shades of color on the website, you know, if you have a website, you figure out which pages really matter. Mm-hmm. And, then on, and then on those pages, which functionality and which features really matter, right? Figuring that out required us to, to slice and dice the data on the funnel from start to finish. And that's where I put a lot of the emphasis on. And for that, we hired more generalists with a lot of raw intelligence, a lot of ambition, a lot of hunger, a lot of drive, you know, we're working crazy hours. The goal really is like, can you figure out what really matters, what are the things that really matter so that we can go, you know, we can take that feature and make it better. You know, I even argue that in the early days, if you look at the, you know, look at the supply side of the equation, we were, you know, in, in, the, in the very early days, we actually had outsourced our entire operations, right? I mean, we actually had a dry cleaner around the block that was taking the inventory from the previous week of the customer, cleaning it and then giving it back to us to actually ship it out you know, to the next customer for the next weekend. And when we looked at the numbers, the fundamental key numbers on the economics, we concluded that the way we can control our supply economics better is if we build the whole thing end-to-end ourselves and we control the whole thing ourselves. So we, we touch it, we care for it, uh, we control the timing and the flow of it, and that's how we also can control the longevity in the long term, right? And that was critical to our supply economics. So that big insight came from slicing and dicing in the first six months to a year of the entire operational supply chain. So, and you know, and the same thing was also like the, the 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 big product features. You know, in order to drive conversion, it's one thing to have a website with a bunch of products and a grid and like a bunch of filters, but we knew that to drive trust, you have to have reviews and photos, right? And a lot of uh, you know customers were kind of indirectly asking for it by actually sending us reviews and pictures after that event and they were and they're they telling us that you know if you have this it'll be more useful for other customers to find the products so we actually built out those features so it, i think in many ways the early team is a lot of generalists focused on slicing and dicing getting the one or two big insights to make the next big leap and we're operating fundamentally in like two to three month increments of product features and i think as we've grown of course you know you need more specialization and now I'd say we, you know, the the team in, in a, within analytics is divided into almost three teams now. One team that's doing all the data engineering, which is the pipelines that drive analysis and data science. So they figure out a way to get all the data into one place, as clean and as fast as they can, and that makes data scientists and analysts more productive. We have the data the data analytics team, which is the core team, which is working with the product and the business guys and trying to figure out the insights. So it, it's, the, it's the ninjas, the slicing and dicing team, if you will. And then you have the data scientists, and the distinction between the analyst and scientists is fundamentally around are they writing production code or not. So the data scientists actually do the analysis, but they also get some insights, and they actually want to make that insight part of the product fundamentally. So they actually would, you know, would push out production code to the website or to the back-end operational systems. So that's kind of how the team is structured now. So we actually specialize in all those three domains. And you know each team is sort of adequately staffed right now. And well, when you say adequately staffed, are those teams roughly similar sizes, or are they uh, is one much bigger than the others? 
Uh, they're actually, I mean, I think the, the the analytics team, the one that's doing the core analysis, is, is probably slightly bigger mm-hmm. because we need that team to be embedded with all the business units across the organization. So we have folks working on the demand side, on the marketing side, uh, you know, with paid marketing, uh, referrals, retention, loyalty, CRM. Uh, so that team is sort of has more business links. Uh, we also have a have it and have a team within the analytics team, you know, focusing on the operations, reducing cogs, uh, focusing on the customer experience. So because there's more, I would say, embedded business initiatives going on, that team is larger. I'd say the data engineering team and the science team is probably comparable. Got it. Got it. So it sounds like uh, it's a mix of centralization and also, in some cases, embedding in in the the operational teams. Is that right? Yeah. You know, I think you know, I. I I've been asked before about this sort of model of uh, centralization versus decentralization. Right. I keep thinking that people are probably conflating a bunch of different things. They're probably conflating the information flow with actual humans and people flow. Hmm. Like, like you know, you would never. I mean, we live in a day and age where you would, you know, a lot of our roles are fairly specialized, right? Like an engineering role is fairly specialized. So is an analyst. So is a data scientist. So is a data engineer. So as a product person, so as a marketer, so it's very hard for me to imagine that these roles would be distributed across the organization. I mean, I mean, today if you go to a lot, a lot, lot of old school companies, you'll see analysts everywhere. You'll see data analysts within finance, within marketing, within operations, and that's still an acceptable model, quote unquote, in their world. I just find it very surprising to me because you know you you get so much leverage when you build a centralized model where the people where the where, where, where analysts can share. Uh, sort of cross-pollinate the data, if you will, because the real big insights come when you when you cross different data sets, right? When you cross the operational data with the customer service data, with how they browsed on the web, that's when you get the real full customer life cycle. Mm-hmm. So I think to me, the big the big uh, benefits are the, the massive benefits beyond just having a team which is centralized, sharing the tools and sharing the skill sets, is also the insights into the business that actually comes when you have one single data team. So I'm, you know, so for, for me, it's not even like a non-starter that you would have a decentralized data team. So the team is definitely centralized. So it's one team reports to one person. They work together a lot. They go out together a lot and socially hang out a lot. They exchange ideas a lot. But then they clearly have uh, affiliations, if you will, into specific business problems that they get deeper and deeper expert expertise in over time. So so we have somebody who's going to be spending a year, year and a half, two years on just scaling paid marketing. So that person in the data team will work with, with the, the direct marketing team a lot, and the product team a lot, and the engineers a lot in building landing pages and testing that and so on and so forth. So the team is definitely centralized. There's no question about that. It's, it's, it's just that, it, it, you know, like any other team, you know, even engineers, for example, it's, their team is always centralized. It's a matter of how you deploy them to solve the business problems, and so that's, that's sort of how we do by you know by embedding them with a cross-functional team, which typically lasts about six months to a year and maybe longer, and then we'll find something else afterwards, you know, because the business needs change over time. Got it. And will you, uh, if if there's a, a long-running business need, will the same person uh, stay on that role indefinitely, or do, are you purposefully changing them around to give them new perspectives, or, or, do, or is it more important that they get deep domain expertise? I think that's really a function of that individual's career goals. Okay. Uh, there are some people who say, you know, I really like what I'm doing. I want to stay in uh, understanding consumer behavior on the website. 
I want to understand how paid marketing works. I want to, and I want to be a deep domain expert in that field. Um, so in that case, they might do that for a couple of years. And then there are those who say, you know, I want to just stay in operations. I want to be an operations analyst for the rest of my life. And there are those who actually want to do more things. So I think it's really a function of the individual and their and their interests. Uh, and uh, you know, no different from I would say the engineers as well, who you know may want to stay on certain parts of the software stack. Got it. Totally makes sense. Uh, and I'm I'm guessing that my that the answer to this question is probably also it varies and it depends and and it's evolved. But uh, what about the the tools that that you all use? Uh, I'm interested both in things that that you have developed internally and also you know third party products and services that that the the data and the analytics teams use. Uh, I would say you know I'm not going to give you a generic depends answer. <laughs> and actually. It, 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 it was simply a function for us as a function of scale, literally a function of scale. Like, you know, one big thing, as you, as I'm sure you're well aware of, is that there is a there is an amazing level of interest in this field now. You know, because you know, catalyzed by the big data movement, there's a lot of people building companies that are just dealing with you know better and better tools to access data, scrub data, clean data, uh, build models faster, do machine learning easier, both commercial and open source. So it's amazing to me to see the amount of change that's happened. You know, if you if you you know if you look at profit logic, I remember we used to get these data sets from retailers. Okay, like we used to like write up a data request and say, give us store level data for three years. And I distinctly remember us taking almost three weeks to four weeks to load that data into our into our warehouse. And we used to have some dedicated people whose only job was to work with the retailer to get the data and load into our systems. And they wow. would go from project to project, and there would be two to three people doing just that for a living. And it's almost funny because now you look at it and like it's, it's, it, that process is, is incredibly fast. You don't even need one dedicated person to do something like that for that scale. So the tooling is just off the charts between what it was in early 2000 and what it is now in 2015. So, now, so that sort of that movement has been happening for a long time, just making the tooling and the you know, making the whole thing much easier. I think for us, when we first start, you know, when, you, when you're an early stage company, you are not really thinking about the tooling. You just want the insights. So again, as I mentioned, you know, I, I hired a bunch of generalists, very young, very ambitious, jack of all trades type people, not specialized in any language, and they just went to where the data was. So we had a MySQL database, which was relational. So they would just, and we actually had a replica of that in, uh, in you know for analytics team it was like a, a, a real-time repli- uh, replicated database and you would just directly hit that and do analysis and then a lot of the web data the users on the website when they were when they were browsing around we were just dropping that into a flat file somewhere and again would just directly hit that flat file using Python or or some bash script so we would just do these like ad hoc analyses on these different parts of data just to get the one or two magical insights that would propel the company forward. But as we grew, obviously, it's not sustainable. So we, you know, at some point, I think I remember maybe three years in, maybe 2011, 2012. Yeah, around that time, there was all this, you know, there was data sitting in the web logs and flat files. There was data sitting uh, in the MySQL relational store. We also, at that point, had a, not, had a NoSQL store for storing our product catalog, which was Mongo. And then we had a bunch of other service logs that were also floating around, and I, and I thought it was too much going on for us to keep doing this ad hoc analysis. And honestly, the speed at which we were doing it also was slowing down. So I decided to actually buy a commercial uh, data warehousing package called Vertica, 
which I'm sure you're familiar with. Sure. And then we built a whole in-house pipeline or framework that pipes all of these different data streams into Vertica, which became our central repository on which we started doing analysis and data science. So that was a move that we did a couple of years ago. And then, you know, as much as I mentioned to you in the early days, we almost did no reports, which also is not sustainable long-term because, you know, once you get to a certain size, there is a certain amount of dashboard results that everybody needs to see constantly to know what the company is doing and where things are headed. It's almost a basic sort of baseline stuff everybody needs to see. So we had to build out a whole slew of reports, and for that, we again bought Tableau. Uh, and then Tableau is a, it's a very simple visualizing tool, and uh, we just stuck Tableau on top of Vertica, and then we had access, and then we give access to all the key stakeholders in marketing, product, engineering, finance, and then that's kind of how we have evolved the tooling, right? So I think to me, maybe I'm in a minority or majority, I really don't know, but I feel like the visualization aspects, the reporting aspects, the data valuing aspects, there's so many companies working on that problem that I'm not really convinced that I needed to go build that on my own. So I just I ended up buying the most obvious solution for the stage we were in. So early days there was nothing, ad hoc scripts, we were doing, you know, we were, uh, you know moving data around in Google Docs and Excel spreadsheets. A couple of years ago we we bought Vertica and, and Tableau on top of our data stack, but we did build our, the, the one thing I did want to own is how are we getting all the data into our data store and how are we transforming it? How are we thinking about it? Because I, I felt like that's really where our intelligence can be applied. And then I think, you know, but unfortunately, you know, fast forward two years and now honestly the, our data size is getting so big that it actually may become commercially not viable for us to keep adding more and more sort of terabytes of data onto the Vertica uh, warehouse. So we actually may at some point, just purely for economical reasons, uh, we've already started the project to actually think about, you know, how do we actually build our own uh, data store on, you know, on the open source stack, which we would use to keep a lot of our raw data, all of our raw logs, the service logs, web logs, and then we will probably keep the transform more compacted data for the last year, last two years, which, which, which really is most of our use cases in Vertica. So that's kind of how we're evolving our, our data stack as time goes on. Does that make sense? That, that does make sense, and it's really interesting. And, and how, what, what's the order of magnitude of the, the size of the data set that you have in, in Vertica now? Uh, we have an 8 terabyte uh, cluster, which is constantly running out of space. Got it. Uh, so we're basically already starting to move a lot of the raw data out of Vertica, and we're actually storing it in S3 for the moment. Uh, but I, you know, but I think we're at a point where we're gonna, you know, I think in 2016 definitely work on a solution where we can keep the raw logs in a place where we can actually also access easily. Uh, I mean, whether it's an Amazon stack, uh, whether it's going to be, a, you know, a Hadoop environment on which you, on which we'll run something like Spark or, or Hive, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I think we're at the very uh, early stages of exploring that option. Got it. And, and have you looked at all at some of the the other? Uh, competitors to Vertica that have come out, like Redshift or BigQuery or Snowflake. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I actually meant Redshift in terms of the Amazon context. Oh, so okay. I think you know, I, I think that I think we'll look at Redshift very seriously. Uh, it probably will be the closest solution for us because we already are moving our data into S3 okay. for storage, mm -hmm. and and uh, you know, obviously it'll 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 make that it'll force us to move into the Amazon stack, and that's fine. Uh, we have to just make a conscious choice that that's okay for us as a company in terms of uh, the overall business landscape. Got it. 
And, and I'm curious, you said that it was a, uh, the one piece that you did want to own was that uh, data consolidation and data pipelining piece. Uh, uh, why was it important to, to own that? Or is that just something where it seemed like there wasn't a great tool uh, that, or at least an obvious tool for the job? I mean, I think, I mean, we are using tools within that. I mean, we're using, uh, we're using, uh, trying to remember what we used in the early days. I mean, I mean we are using things like uh, Luigi and okay. Kafka. So mm-hmm. we are using tools, but, but a lot of the intelligence around, you know, because when you're, when you're a growing company, the big problem that every company will face is that not every not every single data set is clean start to finish, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I mean, you're gonna have some holes in the data, you're gonna have some polluted data, you have constant deprecations of old data sources, and you're creating new data sources, and, and all the time when you're doing that, you actually are in backfilling every single time. So it's up to the analytics team to figure out how to stitch together all these different data sources to get a, to get one view across time. So a lot of that logic had to be built by us, which is why you know I ended up owning that. But the tooling is obviously, you know, we're, we're, we're definitely using the open source tools. It's a matter of the logic of how do you stitch together these data sources from these disparate different tables is really owned by my team. And that has to be because, you know, nobody else can actually insert that domain intelligence into, into our system. Got it. That totally makes sense. Uh, and uh, I know we're starting to run a little short on time, so only one follow-up question on that. Uh, I noticed all the, the data sources you mentioned were all like the, the first-party data sources. It was your transactions, your logs, your, your Mongo database. Are there, I assume there must be, uh, you know, your, your advertising on ad networks. You probably use a bunch of SaaS tools for customer support and other things. Is that data getting piped into Vertigo as well, or is that not part of the same domain? So actually, that's that one of our big drivers of moving into building our own warehouse. Actually, is exactly that. Hmm. There's a lot of data that's sitting out externally. That we are we, we are moving into Vertica right now piecemeal when we have to do analysis. Uh, I mean, we use Zendesk for customer service. We use Sailthrough for our emails. Uh, we have some provider that we're going to work with for a referral program. So all these data sets are sitting outside that we do one-time data dumps for analysis but is not sitting in our system ongoing. Mm. Uh, and an email, for example, is a pretty massive data set, right? Because we're sending this, you know, you know, you know, a couple of emails a week to an entire user base. Uh, you know, our member, our member base is now is 5 million plus. So there's a lot of data that's, that's, that's collected in that, in that system and really want, you know, it's, it's hard to just keep adding more and more nodes on Vertica. So we're gonna probably uh, put a lot of that stuff into some kind of a store and then be able to access that uh, we probably compact the data, get the key variables on a you know on some basis of time into Vertica, but still keep the raw data externally in our in our system. Got it. Totally makes sense. Um, when you think about uh, your team and you know the, the data function in general uh, at your company, what does what does success look like? What's your success criteria? Wow. Uh, <laughs> just I think, a, just a quick question. Yeah. Pretty I, simple. Yeah. It's a, it's yes. Yeah, Last no, about thirty seconds left. So, what does success <laughs> look like to you? Yeah, I, I you know I think the the thing I, I always tell my team, and you can ask them if you ever see them on the you know in, in in any data event or whatever, is that it's all about end of the day business impact. And I think that's again something that's easier said than done. You know, a lot of people talk about business impact, but you have to live it day to day, and it's very easy to get caught up in the buzz and hype around data science and analytics and engineering, and you can get caught up, because you know, this world has a lot of beautiful problems, right, some problems. Like if you just think about modeling uh, a user personalization system, 
uh, in e-commerce. The problem is actually very beautiful, very elegant. There's a lot of data inputs, a lot of outputs, and you can spend a couple of years just building the system out without thinking about the business impact. So I think for me, it's like the business impact comes first, everything else comes after, mm-hmm. almost to the point where uh, I really push my team, even when, when they don't like it, to actually think about business impact. Uh, so it's really, you know, end of the day, I measure my team like, like uh, you know, measure marketing team. Are you fundamentally, you know, can I, can I tie your work to some metric that moved that actually affected the P&L of the business? Uh, whether it's whether it's uh, revenue, bookings, cost of goods sold. Uh, I mean, it, it does include also making us more efficient, which is a little hard to measure. But in a much more, I definitely want to make sure everybody has some piece to play in the fundamental panel of the organization. So it's it's not purely based on number of charts generated. I assume that would be your main way you judge your, your success. That exactly is it. Yeah. The number of charts. <laughs> and the number of cool visualizations that everyone does per quarter. Yeah. It's just heat maps. <laughs> just heat maps. That's all it Just heat maps. Yes. Uh, got it. Okay. That, and that makes total <laughs> sense. Um, another another question that, that we could take, uh, it could be long, could be short, but if, if you think about yourself earlier on in your career, you know, when you're 20 years old, 30 years old, um, if you could give some advice to your earlier self, what would it be? So I want to make sure I understand this question. Sure. So you're asking me if I if I knew what I know today yes. and I travel back in time, what would I tell my earlier self? Uh, exactly right. Is that and, the question? And yeah, okay. the follow-up is going to be, I have this time machine. Would you like to use it? So think <laughs> carefully about it. Well, so by the way, so I've heard this asked of a, in, a, in a lot of interviews and I'm always amazed at how people say, you know, I, w- I would not change anything in the world, and I'm very happy what I'm doing today, which is all true, right? I mean, you right. obviously made a choice along the way. You, know, you don't want to go back and second guess your choices. Uh, you know, I, you know, I just said, you know, I started off at a big company. I had some discomfort in my belly, and I ended up going to this smaller company, which was still later stage, and then now I'm, I joined a very early stage company. So I'm, I'm definitely much more of a startup fish, without mm-hmm. a doubt. Um, but if I know what I know today, and I go back in time. I have so much more information over the last 15 years. I wouldn't go back and do something different, in my opinion. And it's probably true for everybody. They probably just don't want to admit it. Uh, I think for me, it is that I probably wouldn't have taken this circuitous route to get to where I am today. I probably would have, you know, as much as I loved my stint at Procter & Gamble and then at uh, Profit Logic, I learned a lot of stuff. You, you know, I probably could have learned all of that stuff had I joined in a very early stage startup right out of school, possibly. Again, it's a function of what that's, you know, who the, you know, who the startup founders were, what the culture was like, what stuff we were solving, and, and is the right mentor. So that's very hard to predict going back in time, right? But, you know, if I could have found an early stage startup out of my school that had the same level of mentorship that I got at my later stage startup at ProfitLogic, that would have been awesome. Because, you know, you just learn so much more when you're building something from scratch than when you're when you join something that already has a hundred plus people. It's just fundamentally true, right? I mean the hats that I've worn at Rent the Runway cross technology, product, finance, operations, marketing, and that kind of stuff was not available to me at Profit Logic. Where I you know where, where over five years I went from being a data scientist to I got better at managing people and I did learn how to sell B2B applications. Uh, but that was that. That took five years, and uh, I would have probably learned a lot of that, you know, through a much more compressed time frame 
if you were building something from scratch. Like I'm sure you feel right now building RJ metrics. Yes, it is uh, definitely a accelerated learning curve. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So I think, so I would have gone for, so if I know all of this right now, I'd have said, you know, what opportunity would give me the fastest learning curve possible? And uh, I think I did a blog post a while ago by by, by entrepreneur turned VC, uh, Mark Suster. Mm -hmm. And he talks about there is a time to learn and then there is a time to earn. I think he talks about it very beautifully, sort of in those two two windows of, of your career. I think for me, since my early days was all about learning, and I, and I really didn't care about money or any of that stuff, um, I would have probably picked an opportunity which would give me the most learning, and by definition, that would have been a very young, or even a company that I started on my own, right? So that probably, I would have probably done that going back again, but it's again a big function of what that company would have been. If the company had fizzled in a year and was a failure, I may have burned and I may have gone back to a large company and never looked again in startups again, right? So it's very hard to forecast these things because these are all like distributions across time, right? Because um, I actually know people who out of school joined startups, those companies flamed out, they got burned so badly that they, they forever swore off startups and now they're working in large companies. Whereas for me, I was, I was in some ways fortunate that I worked for Profilogic, which was successful. We actually had an exit, we were acquired by Oracle, and then I came and started and joined a very early stage company that actually has survived five years, which also is a, a very, very low probability event among startups. Got it, yeah, so basically what I'm, what I, if I had to distill it it's down. A, it's a long-winded answer. No, but it's, it's great, and I think it makes sense. And uh, yeah, because it's hard, it's hard to move one of the dials without potentially knowing how it'll impact the other dials. Uh, but I, I think it makes sense, you know, where you, you found the thing that you, uh, that you love and that that's the, you know, the fastest way for you to learn uh, after some trial and error. So you'd love to skip the error part if, if you could hold all the other variables yes. constant. That's quite greedy, actually. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, for example, hypothetically, I would have loved to be at Facebook in the early days. I was just going right? to say, my, mine would probably be right? make an angel investment in Facebook. Uh, that would be Well, investment. Idea. I mean, I, I'm not that greedy. I'm not that greedy. Right. I would have been, I, I would have been an early employee at Facebook or an early employee at Google right. to actually see that whole learning curve. would have been dramatically different uh, than joining a Profilogic and then joining Run the Runway. Again, I'm not, dis you know, I'm not dissing any of my previous companies or my current company as a disclaimer. It's really all about can you accelerate the learning curve and still taste enough success that you keep going down that path. And I feel like I, you know, the, the, you know, joining Facebook early on would have been a, a, a perfectly viable alternative. Got it. That, that totally makes sense. Um, cool. I, I guess just, just wrapping up, where, where can people find more about you, where they can find you online, uh, where should they go to, to, to rent designer items? Uh, tell us where you live online. So, so me personally, uh, I actually tweet uh, quite a bit. Not as often as Mark Andreessen. He's, he's very high volume. He is, very, he high is volume. very high volume, and I have no idea. If, I mean, I actually, I mean, we, we, we actually met him briefly as part of our, uh, our, uh, our fundraising efforts, and he actually did say he, he, you know, he does all of his tweets himself, which is very, very impressive. It is impressive. Um, yeah. So, not not as high volume as Mark Andreessen, but uh, I do tweet, and my Twitter handle is. Uh, v J S U B R, V J S U B for boy, R for Roger. So it's it's six characters. Um, and then the company, you know, I work for Render Runway, so I'm and I'm sure if you Google that, you'll find it. It's renderunway.com. Uh, right now, it's only for women. So or or I'm not judging if you're a man and you want to dress up, you know, 
knock yourself out. So you can go, you can find design addresses there for rental. And actually, we just launched uh, recently, not just the, so the, the, the old model was renting uh, for special occasions, for like a wedding or a holiday party. And actually, this weekend, by the way, New Year's Eve is our single largest weekend for the year. Oh, interesting. So that's sort of the original model. It's all about the weekend rental, which is why we had to build out the whole platform to get the inventory back and turn it around for the next weekend, which was a really hard problem to solve. Uh, but then we also launched this uh, business where you now can subscribe for everyday wear, so it's not hmm. just a special occasion. Uh, so we actually have two product offerings right now, and that's at renderunway.com. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, any plans to, to launch a, a men's line? Uh, if some, if I let's say hypothetically, I'm I'm not a person who enjoys wearing women's clothing. Uh, I you know hopefully soon. I think right now I think we're pretty focused on uh, on doing well in one market. Got it. And then once we get, you know, once we're at a certain scale, I'm sure we'll consider not just uh, expanding across uh, verticals, but also going international as well. Mm, got it. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, well, cool. Vijay, this has been absolutely great. I feel like I, I learn a ton uh, every time we talk. And so I'm glad that uh, I was able to record it this time and, and share it with the broader world. Uh, really, really appreciate the time. So thank you. Thank you very much. I think these questions were super interesting and hopefully... This was a good conversation. Yes, and we'll I think the, we'll let the audience decide. Right, and I think I think this will cement your reputation as the Donald Trump of data science, <laughs> as the best data science ever, data ever in the history of mankind. You're making data great again. Making data great again, exactly. <laughs> All right, thanks a lot. <laughs> thanks, man. Take care. Take care. Thanks for listening to Statistically Interesting. This podcast is produced by me and Ryan Williams at RJ Metrics HQ, which is right across the street from City Hall in sunny Philadelphia. If you like what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.